the Brussels Report podcast. Welcome to a, a new episode of the uh, Brussels Report podcast. Uh, my name is uh, Peter Klepper. I'm the editor-in-chief of BrusselsReport.eu. And uh, it's, it's very good to have as my guest uh, Jeppe Kirk Bande, uh, who's a friend of mine. Uh, we know each other uh, quite, quite a long time. Um, and uh, today we're going to discuss investment, which is uh, maybe not the number one focus of Brussels Report, but it's definitely, uh, I think, an, an important segment um, when we discuss uh, Eurozone policies, uh, EU policies, I think it's, uh, it's also interesting to, to, uh, to try to discuss strategies that people can, can follow in their day-to-day life. Um, and um, uh, last year, I, I wrote an article on, um, on, on how to protect uh, yourself from uh, ECB monetary debasement, um, specifically highlighting stocks. And there... I I, I, um, I I I thoroughly went into the world of um, how, how much is an average return from the stock market. Uh, so some sources said it was ten percent, or other sources uh, said it um, it is uh, it is seven percent. Uh, but then uh, my guest today, yep, he, he actually has managed over the last um, I think almost nine years. Uh, to secure a 30% uh, average uh, return. So, so 30, that is three zero, uh, which I find enormously, um, enormously impressive. So, so very welcome, uh, Jeppe. Thank you very much, Peter. And maybe I should add that, that Jeppe has, according to the last information, um, I mean, he has uh, 25,000 uh, uh, copiers on eToro, which is uh, um uh, a platform where people can can simply uh, invest money and then decide to copy a certain investor. I personally find this a very valuable strategy because um, most people are able to buy a house and then to to figure out uh, if if a house is is a good investment or or a good buy. But I mean, uh, at least I'm not uh, capable. I think to to uh, to do better than the market when picking stocks. And there's no shame in saying that this is incredibly. Uh, complicated and and Jeppe has managed to um you know to to have this enormous return over um over quite a long period i mean almost uh, almost 9 years uh, and and uh, up to uh, 73 million euro of investment is actually copying him so so uh, that's truly quite something i should also mention Jeppe that you uh, i mean you don't uh, buy all kinds of Pure companies you buy multinationals like uh, Amazon, uh, uh, Mega, so some others that are perhaps less uh, familiar. Um, so, so I I would say in terms of risk, of course it, it's it's risky. It's buying stocks, but it's not uh, you know uh, some kind of uh, suicide mission that that uh, that that, that uh, you're on if you copy uh, the kind of stocks that you're copying, right? Uh, yeah, so in, in uh, I have my own uh, risk framework that I use, but also the investment platform eToro has a, a risk uh, system where I, different investors get scored on a scale from 1 to 10. So 10 is very risky and 1 is very, very low risk. And then I'm usually on a between 4 or 5 in that and sort of, you know, I don't want to go above 5 certainly. So that sort of puts some limits on there. But I have a level of risk appetite, so I'm always trying to create the portfolio that I believe can give me the highest potential return across different scenarios at my risk appetite. So sometimes that means that there is an opportunity that I think 
if I take this opportunity at this level, it will increase our risk in the portfolio a little bit, but it's worth it because this is a great opportunity. And other times I see the opposite. I'm like, ah, this is not going to give us much in, across most scenarios, but it will reduce the risk so much that it's worthwhile to do that instead. So it's sort of, you're always balancing risk and return effectively when you're, when you're working with investments. Yes, and, and, and indeed from your portfolio, which, which is visible, you don't have to be, um, let's say, uh, you, have, you don't have to be a client of eToro to see it. Your portfolio is visible uh, for everybody to see uh, if you just Google Yeppe Kirk Bonde eToro. So that's E-T-O-R-O. Um, everybody everybody uh, can see it. I also see that you don't often change your positions, maybe a little bit, but... but um, uh, a few times a month, right? Uh, on average. Yeah. So the, the the average is three trades per week, approximately, and that comes in. You know, it's not three trades every week. It comes more at a, you know sometimes I do nothing, and then other times suddenly do you know a lot. So it's sort of in the same sure. way that you have some weeks in which years happen, and you have some years in which only you know weeks worth of events happen. So it uh, it, it it depends if if I'm satisfied with what I have in my portfolio or if I have even better opportunities or yeah some some stocks i already have that i want to have more in and then others i want to have less in okay well i've been i've been f- talking for for way too long but i think it's important to to properly introduce a uh, yep maybe one more thing i mean uh, investment experts will probably know um uh, peter lynch of, of the magellan uh investment fund and and in 13 years he uh, uh he secured a uh, a return uh, that was like 29%. And th- this is known as a legendary return. Uh, so so uh, j- just another point of comparison to, to, to highlight how, uh, how impressive um, Yepa's performance is. I think you're also the most followed. Uh, are you the number one? On it, or the most copied um, yeah, yeah, uh, investor. So, so I would say that's the market speaking, and and the market is always right, uh, at least on the on the long term. Ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe the long term. <laughs> one day, one day. I like to say that the market is medium efficient. Or oh, there's a new uh, Danish book saying it's uh, efficiently inefficient, which of course means that to have a, you know what does efficient mean? If every single you know. A photon in the entire universe was taken into account you know even then you couldn't necessarily value everything perfectly so you can never value everything perfectly but then you could say if everything costs more or less what it should then you would say okay that's not worthwhile for one extra person to spend a long time to to you know find something cheaper if you go into a supermarket and there are 30 identical you know, uh, uh, bottles of milk, it might not t- be worthwhile to spend a lot of time looking for the right one. But, you know, if you come into one and they're all from different uh, time periods and different things and are completely different prices, then it's worthwhile to just take a look and be like, wait a minute, which one is actually better here? And so in general, if the market is, is if, if, if I and others, you know, t- take a look at the market and find that there are things that are not priced right, then it's worthwhile to spend a lot of time to analyze it and to, uh, to, 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 to see if you, you can sort of uh, confirm your hypothesis mm. by it. But in, in, in times where, you know, the market could hypothetically be at the case where everything was randomly priced. So a new lemonade stand would cost the same as Apple. If that was the case, you know, then then analyzing it would be so worthwhile that basically everybody should just go in and, and analyze it. But it will sort of, the market over time, find a level where enough people are analyzing it so that the mar- the price are more or less fair based on information that we more or less have and you know hypotheses that could potentially be true so it's sort of it's gonna gonna be at that uh, at different times so some somewhere m- medium efficient 
Okay, okay. Well, which is great already, I would say. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe uh, let's let's finally dive into it and start with with my first uh, question. Uh, so so very simple. Um, inflation is is. Uh, is raging at least the official uh, CPI statistics are, are really uh, are really bad, uh, and if you just leave your money on the bank, um, uh, you lose a lot, um, up, up to uh, up to eight um, um, percent in, in Belgium, my own country, uh, for example. Uh, so, um, I mean, to, to what extent would you say, uh, from let's say a five-year perspective, is investing your money in the stock market? Um, in in like following your strategy basically uh is that a good strategy to um to protect yourself and your savings against uh, monetary financing by the european central bank and other central banks so i mean for most people in most time periods it's good to have a diversified portfolio for many people that means you know when they're young investing in education is good then buying a property is good and then adding some stocks mm -hmm. is good Historically, bonds was also quite a good asset class. But when you're buying a bond today, you're, the ones you can see trading in the market are at a very low yield. And if inflation is higher than that, then you're basically logging in a negative return. And you know, if you look at what you can insure yourself against inflation for in the markets and compare that with the bond yield, then you know, the real bond yield you're getting on many bonds is certainly negative. But that's obviously not very attractive. And then, then, then with sort of bonds not in favor, they could come back if the interest rates are high. You'll always make a comparison as an investor. You know, you know, if I look at the the my expected um, uh, profits and growth from a company that I can invest in, and I see, yeah, okay, they're having a nice, nice, uh, safe profit margin. They're having good growth. I believe I can make some eight percent per year from this, or twenty percent, or fifty percent, or whatever is the is 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 the is, is the case there. Can I always compare that as well with what could I get with a bond from them? If they were offering me eighteen percent from a bond, you know, that even if the company goes bankrupt, I'm going to get my money before everybody else, I would probably pick the bond. But, you know, if they're offering me what's effectively a negative rate on that bond, I'm going to say, you know what, I, I don't feel like that's a, that's a, that's a very good deal I'm, I'm getting here. Yeah. And, and, uh, and and then you say, with, if you're holding cash, then you are not even getting that, that interest rate. Of course, you don't have the, the risk that they won't pay you back, but you're still holding something that is, that is, um, that is, uh, that is, you know that will be created more of as time goes by, and therefore, if in if, if the creation um, amount in terms of you know total, total liquidity supply in the long term is significantly higher than the growth of the total economy. So if you know you can imagine an economy where there's one you know ten people, ten cows, and ten dollars, and then these ten people they each you know think one cow is worth one dollar. If that economy adds one more person, one more cow, and one more dollar, and they buy one cow per year, you know, a cow will still cost $1. But if suddenly there's $20 in that economy, it's very likely that somehow they'll find a way that each cow should now cost $2 instead of one, mm -hmm. just because there's yeah. twice the amount of money. And that's yes. sort of the, the process. So if you're only increasing the economy by 10% or by 1%, but you're increasing the total liquidity supply by more than that, then that pushes for inflation. And all these other factors of, you know, short-term uh, squeezes and here and there, and, you know, oh, how should we calculate the oil price into the inflation whatnot, that over the very long term won't matter at all. These things sort of disappear away compared to the effect from the, the, the total expansion of the money supply. Yes. Then when you look at sort of what can uh, can central bank directors that want to leave a good legacy for themselves do when they've suddenly experienced too high inflation after, you know, handling a, a severe shock to the to the global economy. Firstly, there is a 
there, there's not an idea that you need to go into deflation. You know, if you want to credibly say we should have two percent inflation in the long term, then you know, inflation was for quite a while only at one and a half percent. So then, sort of, you was banking a half percent extra every year, sort of saving that up as oh, we can to maintain our long term two percent credibility. Every year we only at one and a half percent. We have a half percent left. We can spend some other time. But now we've burned through that, unfortunately. So all the goodwill build up has been a been been burned through. But then you know, if you have you know eight percent and then five percent and four percent and inflation rates of of that magnitude, then you could say okay, to get the expectation back to two percent, you should have negative you know deflation certainly. But that's not not the the case. The, the case is more that you would try to you know um, not gonna happen. Try, Try to go down to something like three percent, then maybe two point seven percent, two and a half percent, and two percent, and then go down to you know one point eight percent and one point five percent, and then then sort of with, if if that becomes the general thing that people expect, then they will also believe that it could be two percent long term. Now, of course, there are some you know definition changes. You can you can uh, you know you change the way that inflation is calculated. There's also now a new definition of how a, a recession used to mean mean like two consecutive quarters of negative uh, GDP growth, but now it just mm-hmm. means you know, a, a longer period of negative overall economic performance. So it's sort of, so it's, it's easier to achieve your targets nowadays when you're allowed to change sort of the definition of them. Um, but I think there is a, and of course, then then in an economy where everybody's expecting um, high uh, liquidity increases every year and where the government is spending as if, you know, based off of them being being able to uh, to to get that extra credit from from the, the central banks in 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 that environment you are pushing out a lot of economic growth that we all experience and 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 when we don't have that anymore of course that's going to leave many businesses less profitable it's going to leave many people with uh, you know not getting that uh, that raise they were maybe hoping for and uh, and other you know uh, uh, sales people not not closing that sale they were hoping to to get there and so forth and that 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 leaves you know that uh, if you have a company that's making some 5 or 6% um return on their capital then then suddenly maybe they'll only be making three or four percent so you affect all that in but with all that those you know um, with all that negativity around that inflation and say where, what can you then do with your with with with, with your capital and there mm-hmm. you have to um the, the, you know the assets that are that where you can increase prices quite flexibly those ones can they're not immune but you know there are sometimes where if you are in a position where it's really difficult for you to negotiate increasing your price or for you to negotiate your salary as well then you sort of you are you are the one that will be a bit in trouble because because while others will be increasing the prices if you aren't able to then then you know then you are the one who's getting a you know a, a, you're being bargained a, a step down and in terms of uh, like real assets like oh, the ownership of companies ownership of properties ownership of commodities and such these have generally been quite able to adjust not necessarily in in one month or three months but sort of over over a few years certainly there are many graphs in many good uh, pricing strategies and companies based off of um, you know you can't you can't write an email out to your customers every day saying we've changed the price we've changed the price the customers are going to go insane in this way but you can sort of you know once in a while change the way you are you are there's a whole sort of like series of best practices for how how to how to change your prices and you you follow them certainly within a foreseeable uh, future certainly within three years you can sort of have adjusted your prices to to uh, to to accommodate that uh, that that punch from 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 the extra inflation Yes, so, so um, let's say you already have your own house uh, or real estate, uh, which I think is a no-brainer as a first investment. Otherwise, you have to rent, and and you have your cash uh, cushion. Like, how much of your percentage would you put of your assets would you put in specifically in stocks in that so, scenario? So, 
in terms of uh, sort of uh, wealth management for uh, normal people and then for different classes of uh, let's say for for ordinary uh, people yeah they're, they're, the thing with them um, with the with the for of course if you if you're very rich then then it's easy to sort of keep things at a nice balance because one property isn't much out of your total portfolio mm-hmm. so you can sort of uh, very much when you are a, a normal middle 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 class person then you know of course the property is the big chunk and buying a second property at some point will be another huge step up so the normal mm. case will simply be that you you know at some point you buy a property and then there's a long long time where all of your investments will be going into stocks and only basically when the when 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 you either have a great opportunity to add a second property such as buying a beach house or buying something else then you, maybe you can jump on that opportunity but there'll usually be a long while where you can add stocks and then when you have as many stocks as you have property then you could contemplate you know that you know you'll be adding stocks for a while but you'll also be eyeing now the second property and there is um, for many 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 rich people as well normal people there is having both property and stocks in almost 50 50 is a very fine way of having having your assets okay. allocated well 50 percent is uh, if you have to match uh, let's say um, the, the number of stocks uh, in terms of value with uh, your real estate i mean that that uh, I, i would say that mo- most people at least in 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 europe Um, maybe it's different in the states. Um, yeah, are are absolutely underinvested in stocks, right? Well, so it's a journey to get there effectively. So you'd mm-hmm. have many that uh, when you buy a property have zero stocks, and then you get to a point maybe where people have slightly making more. You know, often you'll have also the first year people have a property, they have lots of extra. You know, they they stretch themselves thin to to buy the property. Mm-hmm. Then there's a period of sort of uh, settling in and whatnot. But then after that, suddenly maybe uh, people start seeing some cash flow. Then if they, of course if they have four children, then You know that'll that'll cost the cash for a while, but they they can certainly once you start having excess cash every month, then you can start building up into stocks, and then you effectively can continue to invest into stocks for a long, long time. So you don't have to sort of worry about about all sorts of other things. You have a long, long runway now where yeah, if you have excess cash, you can plow some of it into stocks. The other things as well, of course, you know, depending on where you are, you can you can have insurance, you can uh, invest in your pension fund. Um, It, and of course, it's become easier now as well to make private investments, but that's usually for people with a, a, a lot more money to invest in, a, in, in startups or anything like that. The, the classical sort of thing that I think where people are over-investing is you have, have a property and you have, have a lot of property, that's still very fine. But sort of a lot of um, companies now pitching you know, investments in art and collectibles mm. and NFTs and different cryptos <laughs> and such. And while individual ones can be fine, the historic average of this whole asset class is negative so if you look through history what has been the return of people collecting stamps you know my dad he had lots of stamps they were very popular back in the day now stamps are not so valuable anymore some people collected uh, magic the gathering cards when i was a kid now they've become very valuable but they might not stay very valuable and so there are many different ones and some of them have done well some have not done well but if you add them all more or less together you know tulips did well in the netherlands for a while as well in uh, some hundred years ago but it's um those added together is not a great asset class so you sort of i would say for most people it doesn't make sense to pile a lot into that only you know a very limited amount into some maybe one one thing that that you are even ex- accepting sort of there is so much passion involved as well maybe that 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 you are willing to to stake a little bit of of your investment in it as well and what if uh, let's say interest rates uh, go up uh, quite uh, considerably um, and and let, let's just assume central banks will will do what they have pledged to do which personally I doubt. I think the consequences may be too big and they may just uh, revert course. But let's just assume that they will actually do what they have said that they will do. Um, I mean, do, do you think that this would uh, hit real estate prices uh, more than stock prices or, or is it too simple to just to, to say it like that? 
Uh, no, I think you can hit them about 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 e- equally. Effectively, mm-hmm. it's not only a question of you know what will happen in interest rates, what will happen to that compared to expectations. And expectations is always there will rise certainly a uh, some extent. And you have to um, you know uh, many places if you compare what you're paying for property compared to what you can make in rent or what it costs to build a new property and so forth. And you compare stocks with how much they're growing and how much profit they have and so forth. Then they are they are sort of both reasonable asset classes still it's not that one of them's completely raised away from the other into a into a, to a realm of being a that you should all do, do, yeah so they're still both very sensible to have and they're also both sensible to have even when interest rates are potentially a lot higher except there could come a point where you want to be adding some bonds as well um and in terms of sort of uh, your your total risk management effectively you know you're not gonna eat your money. You're not gonna. Uh, you sort of is in, in, uh, uh, see that in your life you're gonna live in a house. Okay, you, you own a house. So then your need for a house is hedged against your ownership of a house. Even if houses double in price, oh no, you need a house. So the cost of acquiring a house has now doubled. That's terrible. But you own a house, so the value of the house has doubled. So actually, nothing has happened to you. You might feel very happy that your house went up in value, but also your need for a house went up in cost by two so even though people are happy when their house goes up in price it's actually they didn't gain anything the only thing they potentially gained was a bigger tax bill because when they sell their house maybe it's there's a tax on it so uh, mm-hmm. and the same a little bit if the stocks are just going up from inflation there oh yes my stock is worth twice as much yeah but you know that does it, it depends on what you can trade it for so effectively if you own stocks in the companies that make the things you need more or less then you're effectively owning factories that can produce for you the things you need you know, you have a part share in that. If you own a piece of agriculture in one way or the other, and you need food, and then that hits against your need for food, you have effectively immunized, immunized because oh no, the price of food doubled. Yeah, but also my investments that are capable of producing food have doubled. So then, then, so in that way, by having a lot of different assets, you can almost make yourself immune to all of these things. In terms of when they change interest rates, so that the value of currencies change a lot. Everything else is measured in currency, so it'll seem like everything went up or down in value very significantly. If the dollar is suddenly made much, much stronger, you know, that's very often when you read big stories in the news of like the oil price is hitting a record thing. Ah, it's very rarely because of anything to do with oil. It's just because the dollar, you know, has has, has changed a lot in value. And then the, the oil, when measured in dollars, is changed significantly. But the oil measured against all sorts of other assets has not necessarily changed. And if you're a billionaire and you own an island and a company and a mega yacht and 10 other things, and the price of all of them double like it doesn't really matter because yeah now you can trade at double priced island for a double priced yard or you can trade a double priced yard for a double priced company but you still own one 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 and you can trade them just like you could before so sort of because they make of course if you're willing to have everything in cash just at the right time that could potentially be good but because cash on average historically has lost three percent per year due to inflation and because it's only in very you know very lucky periods here and there that cash has suddenly managed to be really good compared to all other assets. It's very dangerous to have all your assets in cash, hoping for hitting that you know exact nice timing of yes, I touched the crisis there, or yes, I touched that uh, change in central bank policy or something. It's um in cash is good for into the extent that you have your own cash management. Um, so you have a a need for cash in general. And you might also have it in order to feel comfortable. So everybody mm. should not have to, you know, rethink their whole uh, living situation and property situation and stock portfolio because they get a dental bill or because, you know, suddenly uh, they need went to a, a, a restaurant and, uh, so, so, you know, it, it's very nice to have a little bit of money or credit available for those day-to-day expenses and the, you know, uh, 
likely unforeseen expenses. People don't need to be uh, cash management prepared for everything that could happen, but there is a certain comfort level in having enough cash or credit available for any sort of thing that can likely happen. But then anything beyond that is can start to be something one considers. Hmm, am I having all of this cash just lying around here that I, you know, I could potentially need, but it's not likely I will need it. And if I need it, of course, you know, then I might have to do the hassle of going in and selling some of my stocks. So I have to do the hassle of something. But if there's a sort of, you have enough enough to cover um, likely unforeseen expenses, then anything beyond that can potentially be put to better use. Now, of course, it's also whenever you're investing in property or stocks or alternative and so forth, it's also mm. a, you're also taking the action of, of, of taking on risk. No one's willing to reward you very much. And that's a difficult thing for, for people to understand that you're not just, that people used to like say, I buy this shoe, I get one shoe. But when you buy one stock, it's not like I give you $100, you give me back 130 next year. No one is willing to give you that deal. In fact, they're willing to give you that deal, but they want your money to protect it. So if you want to give your money and for certainly have something back next year, you're earning a negative interest rate. So there is no one out there who will just take your money and give you back higher next year. But what you can do is you can agree with the business effectively that you take on part of their risk in exchange for cash. And then you might get back more later. So Jeff Bezos, when he was running Amazon for many years, he could not himself take on all of that risk for that expansion. He would have to borrow insane amounts of money and leverage himself so that the tiniest little thing would bankrupt himself. So instead, he said, you can buy into Amazon at this price, issuing more shares, allowing others to take risk away from him, but also sharing then in the potential gains from that. And that's what we're being rewarded, being rewarded for as stock market investors. We are putting our capital at risk and thus we might potentially be rewarded from that from others that are having a great business idea a great business that's running and expanding but they they have way too much risk when they're going to build a new factory so they're relying on us shareholders to come in and say we are willing to take some of that risk away from you we want you to build this big new factory but we don't want one person to have all of that risk instead Yebe and peter and many others are piling in with a little bit of our capital to assume a little bit of the risk and then if this you know, factory is a good idea. If this new product is a good idea, if this new innovation is a good idea, then then we can all be rewarded for that. And that's um and effectively, if very few people in this world are willing to put anything at risk in this way, you know, if nobody wants to lend out their land, if nobody wants to, you know, work a few hours without getting paid in advance or to give away their capital without knowing whether you get something soon, then if nobody's willing to do that, then the few people that are willing, they can earn a very high return. Because you know, if there's only a, f- a few people willing to to put their capital at risk, the people who want to borrow that capital, they need to pay a very high fee for it. And effectively, if you look historically, why the return on stocks has been seven percent uh, in real return, or you know, ten percent in if you in- include inflation in across the West at least, then 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 that is because that most people have this sort of um, sense that no, they prefer something that's that's nice and guaranteed and safe, and not yes. this uncertain outcome. Absolutely, because in my experience, when I, I talk, for example, to people about your performance, um, I mean, most people are not interested in the slightest. I don't know. It's like um, there's something, there's some feeling about stocks that it's some kind of a casino that uh, it's going up, it's going down, and, and there's no real proper strategies uh, possible. And, and there's people claiming, uh, well, which is supposedly... Uh, backed up by uh, academic literature that um, it's impossible to to beat the market in a consistent way that's one of these um, one, one of these dogmas some people um, are, are pushing um, so so yeah what, what, what's your what's your view on that it's, is that also your experience that that um, there's some kind of a uh, 
uh, I don't know how to say, so, so some weariness and and uh, or maybe deep misunderstanding about uh, the stock market, the stock market and buying stocks. So there is a. a Effectively, stocks is as risky as almost everything else in life, but it's a way, way more visible risk. If you look mm. at people that buy a new Netflix subscription and they have it and they get it and, you know, maybe they, they keep it for, 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 for one month. One person in that one month might have watched a lot of shows and really enjoyed it. Another person, he didn't watch much and didn't enjoy it. But they don't get like a number thrown at them saying, you only watch two shows. You have lost this much value. If they got that one, then they would be very scared of getting a Netflix account. Like, oh no, what if I don't use it enough and don't get my full value? If people buy a new pair of shoes, this might become their favorite pair of shoes. They wore them a lot of times at the best events. And those shoes were actually so valuable to them. But they might also buy a pair of shoes and they only wore them a few times and then they, they never got much value out of them. But no one's sending you a notification in your app every day telling you that you didn't use your shoes much and telling you that you lost value on your purchase of those shoes. But that's not the case with stock markets. They are traded every day. Every day you can log into your app and see how they're doing and you will exactly know, oh no, I bought, you know, I invested in this company. I thought it was great, but you know, now it's uh, trading 20% less than when I bought it. So I've lost 20% of my money. So you you are made aware of your failure right then and there and that's very very tough it's nicer to just sort of forget oh i purchased something i didn't use it much and you know then uh, then then you sort of can nicely forget about it and you didn't didn't think about it there but actually the risk is a little bit in the in the, in the same ballpark as when you're purchasing things very many purchases have a highly different potential outcome in value quite and, and ironically i think there's way greater interest in in things that are I would say gambling, like uh, buying a lot of crypto, for example. I mean, young people today, I think there's a lot more passion in uh, in the crypto market. They're a lot more passionate about that than uh, looking at, uh, I would say, proven uh, more, more, um, you know, more certain ways to 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 uh, to, to increase your capital, like um, intelligent stock strategies. Yeah, and so the, I mean, that's obviously an allure of uh, get ri- get rich quick, and uh, that that's taken many shapes and form over the uh, you know over, over over history, and that that can be be quite unfortunate. Um, but you know, if people have excess capital and they're willing to take a lot of risk, that's very fine. And then you of course gotta gotta find out how can you be rewarded the most on average across scenarios with that risk. So then it's on you know, there's a very big difference in my crypto aside if you look at the stock market compared to a casino there's a huge difference in that in a casino the the averages are against you every time you go and play on the roulette you would say that oh but there's a i'll forget it's a 36 numbers and then two green or something like that you lose a certain percentage with every roll of the roulette so then if you do that many many times you can start to calculate oh if you're losing on average every time if you do it enough times you will for sure have lost money so in the stock market, it can be just as volatile. It might go up a lot or down a lot. But if the average historically has been 7%, and if you have companies that are on average earning certain returns on their capital, and then you know it could go up or down, but the house is with you. You are on average earning the 7% plus minus your luck. Whereas in the casino, you are earning minus 3.6% or something plus minus your luck. So that's a very important difference. But people might not notice that. Similarly, you know, if you buy a, a lottery ticket, people don't care whether they have the odds one in a million or one in a billion times, whatever it is. But that's, that's, that's you know, if you think mathematically about it, that is extremely important. Mm. Especially if Absolutely. you do it for 30 years, you know, then because then the, then the averages will start to really show themselves. Absolutely. So, so then 
Off to a new topic. So, what's your view on on gold? Eh? So, so I think you know I'm I'm quite a gold bug, not in the sense that I w- that I would pump hundred percent of my assets into gold, but uh, b- because I, I generally believe that, especially um, as compared to holding euros, that um, uh, it's not excluded that we have um, um, that the eurozone collapsing. I mean, especially now with interest rates going up again, uh, it's not excluded that we have major, uh, you know. Um, uh, upsets in society uh let's hope that the war in ukraine is now um uh, that that this will not expand and everything of course but but i, th- I think that's uh, we should not uh, underestimate that risk and then buying um i would say physical gold is 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 not a bad idea specifically if you look at the last uh, 20 20 years uh i mean this particular uh, commodity has uh, has actually been do- doing quite all right in some cases some comparisons even better than the the s p 500 uh, so so uh, what's your view on that also knowing that i saw that you have uh, a gold stock or a gold mining stock in your uh, portfolio uh, which uh, which uh, let's say reassures me about it but uh, pl- please please uh, yeah. So, I mean, firstly, the the problem with gold is that since uh, if you had a gold bar in the Roman Empire and you kept that gold bar, today you still have one gold bar. The gold bar doesn't spawn little baby gold bars. It doesn't uh, multiply mm. into more gold bars, which is different from having a property that you rent out and thus you make rental income, which you can use to improve the property and eventually buy a new property. So if you owned one property and then operated that, that property would over time have multiplied into a large property portfolio. If you owned a company, that company kept making profits. That company either paid those profits out as dividends that could be used for other things, or it kept the profits and invested it in making the business bigger, acquiring other businesses, just making more of the same business. That business grows. So over time, the, 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 a business or a property investment there can grow a lot, but a gold bar more or less stays a gold bar. So that's, that's the unfortunate side of it. The good side is in terms of, um, of, of those secu- of, of that really core security level. At the, at the worst, most extremes of times, of course, if one person has a gun and one has a gold bar, the person with a gun will have a gold bar and a gun. And that's, that's, yeah. uh, um, so in, in terms of, uh, of, 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 of the most risky scenarios, of course, there's security is, is a whole different sort of, sort of matter. But in many scenarios through history, gold has proven its worth as a, you know, very uh, testable, unique, has all the good characteristics of what used to be called money. I mean, uh, the definition of money has changed over the years. Um, mm. But, it, that, that you know, gold used to be money. Now gold is a commodity. And uh, what, what used to be a, a note that was redeemable in gold, that was that was a bond. But now it's a, now that's money. And then uh, and, um, if, and if, effectively, if you have, um, you know, if it says on a, on a piece of paper in the Danish government's uh, vaults that I own a property and I have a copy of that and my bank has a copy of that, then it's very, um, you know, then then I get the right to use that property. But my right to use that property, I have to say, it's not just because the piece of paper exists. It's because there's a government, the police department and other people that accept it and there are some conventions and norms and all of these things around that make that piece of paper worth a property. Effectively, if without all of that thing, then that piece of paper is not worth a property. And if 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 we have a society where effectively money is just uh, is just a type of debt, because if I write a piece of paper, you have an island with just two people, and I write a piece of paper that says, "Peter, you owe me one favor," and then I have that, 
and then you know uh, eventually you do a favor for me, and I give you back the paper, and you say, okay, now it's a uh, now it's reverse. You owe me a favor, and then we keep passing this paper back and forth whenever we do each other a favor. Then that that piece of paper is just representative of our idea that one of us needs to do the other one a favor, and we have that collectively. When you own a piece of money, you are owed a favor from someone that believes that money has value, and that that's just it. So there's no sort of clear distinction where debt and money is different it's just debt and money money is a type of debt and the thing that 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 proves it can be a piece of paper or a number on a screen or whatever it is that's just sort of the our method of remembering who has it and you know in the east island you used to have have rocks on the bottom you just had big rocks and said if you have a big rock then then you owe me a favor and then we say like now you own the big rock then you are the one who has entitlement to a favor for one day when we uh, so that that's sort of an um and gold has been accepted across different cultures, easy to transport, easy to easy to, easy to store, doesn't take up too much space and so forth. So for all those reasons, it's been a very good, good, good core. Asset. But then if you compare how much gold you're getting when you're buying one gold bar and paying the money, it's very fine. Now you have your gold bar. Now you've got to store it and keep it safe and sure no one comes and rob you. Maybe you'll, you know, sail to a small island and dig it down like a pirate or something. But other than that, there's a lot of problems with that. But if you look at what you can get with a gold mine today, with a, some gold mines, you have all your gold safely in the ground, mixed in with a lot of rock, and have equipment that can nicely dig it out over time and sell it at the right times based on the prices. So you have, if you look at how much gold you're getting in the ground for a lot of the gold mining companies now, you're getting a lot of gold for very little money. And those companies are digging it out at a very good rate. Then they have the ability, in many cases, to increase the rate at which they dig it out. They also have the ability to make exploration, to uh, get licenses, to uh, get out more gold from other places. You can see with you know uh, third-party um, uh, surveys for how much gold there is in the different different places. And if, if, if you sort of compare what you're paying there, you have companies that are having extremely steady production rate, selling at a very good price at very, very cheap rate, then that's just a much better investment in my view right now. So if I, so I can have gold mines or gold, I much prefer gold mines. That didn't have to be the case. The gold bars, of course, you know, in the worst of cases, safer. That's the, there was an older saying that you should have, you know, a certain amount of your money in uh, jewelry on yourself, because then if the worst things happen, you know, you can always just run away. And at least, you know, you might have a, you know, you can, you can, you can, can sell your ring to get a, ferry ticket or, or something like that so that's sort of uh, taking out the most extreme uh, scenarios that uh, you know i i i have a uh, you know many many th- thousands of scenarios that uh sure that i i look at and whatnot and there are some that uh, that are in there but they're with such a small percentage change that they don't really matter but you know it's still a you know one of those unlikely scenarios one day will happen so if if this one protects against many enough of them effectively it could could potentially be be worthwhile all right, good, good. And and then um, other commodities, I mean, especially with the, the war in Russia, I mean, the EU is going to impose a coal embargo uh, on Russia. It's expected that the next step may be an oil embargo. That's a big step. Uh, it's, it may not materialize, but uh, there, there's, there's a chance. And then least likely, but still a small possibility is that the European Union imposes a gas uh, embargo on on Russia. So, so um, I mean, what, what's your view on on investing in uh, in oil, coal, coal, gas, perhaps um, other uh, commodities? Think of nickel that are also, let's say, heavily present in Russia. I mean, what's not present in Russia? Uh, so, so many commodities, and and maybe even beyond the specific Russia situation with with inflation numbers, uh, clear, uh, let's say, energy. Um, uh, energy prices go, going through the roof already before Putin's invasion. I mean, how do how do you play on on that? 
I mean, for societies as a whole, war is a lose-lose uh, outcome, right? But there can be cases where individuals are willing to say, yes, we lose, but you lose more, and therefore we are willing to take this this hit. And that's, of course, very unfortunate that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's come to this. Um, but in in terms of uh, of of without going militarily against Russia, doing everything else that that we can is, is sort of um, some of these steps make very good sense. But then of course there's a challenge that it, it can be sort of unfair exactly who it hits. So you have of course some companies where they will get very 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 brutally hit from this. And, mm. and that, you know if you have um, say you know now we are because we are willing to to do this and that it could certainly cause uh, you know that not as much food is shipped to certain countries or something like that then they are the ones that are getting food. randomly hit so there needs to be also some kind of mechanism where we say okay collectively we want to do this so we are willing to compensate the ones that are getting extra hit from this and if we do it that way then we can potentially overall as a european economy you know take a big punch and say okay you know we're not gonna we don't want any individual particular country in Europe and individual companies like that to take this massive punch but collectively we can certainly sustain this and then we're just going to compensate exactly where that punch hits and then then we should be able to be able to take it and then uh, then then I think there is sort of a, a, a timeline question of of you know uh, of is it better to sort of take a a, a, a a very big hit early on is it better because you know how much does that it, uh, you know sort of discourage Putin and, 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 and that kind of behavior versus how much does it damage us? Could we do, you know, almost as much discouragement for half the price if we wait a little bit? That can sort of be a little little uh, little argument for that where sort of but you could also just be brutal and say, you know what, actually, give us give us give us the big punch here and then you know we'll we'll we we'll deal with that in, in terms of, uh, of sure. these things. And also uh, my question was also meant to like in terms of investment, how, how do you uh, let's say defend yourself against that? I mean, um, is it time to 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 buy some uh, some gas stocks because some Part of the gas supply will be taken of the market uh, if this thing escalates, uh, and or the same with with uh, with oil stocks and and other things. Well, firstly, event-based investing is generally not a very good strategy. Mm-hmm. It's um, okay. it's it's um, if you have an event that's being analyzed by the media, you only got to say how mu- how much if you if you want to say like you are being rewarded in the markets by contributing unique new analysis of things, you know, finding out mm. here are twenty tomatoes, they all look the same to everybody, but you are making a unique analysis of you know their specific property and identifying that these five of the tomatoes are actually slightly better. You're buying a used car, maybe everybody sees the same thing, but you are an expert in tires and you find that these one have slightly better tires and you're getting a slightly better value, even though they cost this and this is indifference, you can you can tell something. That you know, yeah, you come in with your unique analysis and you're getting rewarded for that. So you're getting the average result plus a reward for your extra good analysis. But if you have an event that the entire news media is focused on, all politicians, all departments of government and all the major investment banks and everybody, the chance that this is underanalyzed is extremely small. So you are mm. adding your analysis on top of all of this existing framework of analysis. So it's very unlikely that you are you you can make money from it, but you are you are going to be um, you. It's just like there can be a very large investment bank that finds value in doing it because it's, they have some marketing value. So by developing a lot of expertise in this, they can say something, and then in addition, they can make a little bit of money to recoup a little bit of the value spent on on conducting all this analysis work. But it becomes mm. low margin business. So you're making, yeah, you have to compare, you know, if you are, if you are, if you are hiring hundred people to sit and work day and night on analyzing something, and this drives your return 
on say even if you're a very big investment fund with a, a trillion dollars and this drives your return up by 0.0 something percent or something then you might not have made the money back and if you're doing this event after event after event you know always a new thing now you have to be an expert this now you have to be an expert in that you might not over the long period actually end up making it at excess return on that but in, in general you can say in the same way that you want your portfolio to uh, to have sort of things that are heads against different things some of these assets can make sense in that regard and so there can be a you know a case where you say if you have oil and gas and a lot of companies in your in your portfolio need oil and gas then you by having the your own oil and gas you know are protected against price rises or and you know vice versa you already protect against price decreases from it so then then that can sort of safeguard yourself then there can be some of them that are more in in terms of having an ethical portfolio people may want to say that they should not have um, more uh, oil and gas than average compared to having renewable energy for instance so you sort of you know if not having only renewable energy you're just pushing a little bit in the right direction on this and and similar with other things where you could say you know if you um a lot of people have historically not wanted to invest in defense companies but of course you cannot have military defending democracies with you know making their own weapons out of uh, nothing there's a, a need Absolutely. to produce some of these things um and, and so you'll have some companies that are doing some things that are sort of not nice but necessary but you have others that are doing things that are not nice and also not necessary and so these can sort of be i would say even if they have a temporary sort of a moment last last moment in the sun or something they still might not be something that that should really belong in a good ethical portfolio well yeah and and um uh, very good points uh, from which I, I sort of take away that um, yeah if, if something is heavily analyzed uh, the chances are that the market price will be let's say uh, more correct than um, in other cases uh, but but sort of uh, I mean there, there are some political developments I think that we see now which is perhaps um, incorrectly described as reversing globalization in the sense that um, we may end up a situation where where trade with um, uh, trade with countries outside of the West or, or with um, countries that are not partners of the West, notably China and Russia, will become a lot more complex and burdened with all kinds of uh, hurdles, uh, justified or not. Uh, so, so I mean, I see you have some Chinese stocks, for example. If I'm not mistaken, you 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 um, you you were invested in Novatech, right? Uh, Russian stock. Uh, I think you have um, you have um, what Ferex or something, so, uh, yep. so, some uh, ma- Ferex, a mining company, right? In 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 Ukraine, uh, which I'm sure has has suffered some damage. Uh, so so uh, yeah, like how um, uh, yeah how how do you adjust for that? Because this is not something visible on the. Uh, on the accounts of companies that may be very fine in principle, but then, you know, politics weighs in, whatever we really like it or not. So you sort of have to uh, adjust for that. Well, so firstly, in sort of in, in my time in investments, I've seen many sort of come and make a clear statement saying like, I think this is going to happen. They put all their money on that <laughs> and they're right. But then, you know, three years later, Overall, they are significantly down because they weren't right consistently with that. And so mm. it's not so it's, it's more of an art to be able to say, yeah, these are both potential scenarios. And this may be, I put 70% likelihood on that and 30% on that. And this becomes the case, I think, that's valued like this. If this becomes the case, it's valued like that. So when I average that together, saying 70% likely of this thing happening, and in that case, this will be that value of that. Overall, I then think these assets are worth that much. 
And then that might mean that there are some assets that are good in China. It might be there's some assets that are good in the US. The ones that are good in China might be getting a lot of their value from the good scenarios where there's continued trade, or they might be very good because of a scenario where there's no continued trade, but China ends up winning everything and the whole world becomes, you know, China dominated. So it's based off of those scenarios where that one becomes good. But then you say hmm. that asset isn't good because you believe that's the most likely scenario because you're like, no, that asset is good. If an asset is great, of course, if it could be amazing across all scenarios. But most assets will be more good in some scenarios and less good in other scenarios. And then sort of when you look at all those scenarios and then evaluate the assets, then, then there'll be some that sort of like, ah, oh, yeah, this is good in that case. But if that happens, it's bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. You know, it's only this bad. So and then when you when you weigh that out, you get to sort of some valuations. And then with, with some of these things, for instance, as Westerners investing in China, you'll also see that you're getting some lower prices compared to the profitability and growth and other metrics. So then sort of like, oh, you're getting this discount. Yeah, but there's also this risk that, you know, you know, in a, like when when I was investing in, in that Russian company as well, I put in a high percentage chance that it would one day be nationalized. Saying, "Oh, that could be a conflict. The Russians are gonna." Sure. Then it was sort of nationalized in a different way, in in the way of saying like we're no longer allowed to trade it from here, and only Chinese investors can now sort of buy them in Russia. So there's <laughs> been sort of that uh, and a different sort of way of uh, of it. And it could change. You know, in ten years maybe it'll come back to the global market or something. But there's a uh, um, and that 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 sort of same. Um, if, if there is an overload of negative potential, it'll be a discount. But it, this discount can all be, so, be too great because people are very risk averse and they're very story risk averse. So if people hear, oh, this stock has a big red flag in it, there's something very dangerous about it, this could go very wrong. Then people think I must not have this at all in my portfolio, but that's not necessarily the case. If there's a 15% chance of something very bad happening, but there's a you know 20% chance of something very good happening, and you know then you multiply the numbers you're like, hey, actually take that risk it's not your only stock it's not your only investment necessarily if you have lots of different stocks it's fine that one of them has a you know potential very bad outcome that's that's fine you don't need every uh, if you have you know one tesla once in a while and one nvidia once in a while and so forth then it's okay that there's also once in a while a russian company that didn't pan out or several chinese companies that didn't work out and, and, and so forth that's uh, that that the the that's the nature of a of diversified portfolio well, okay, great. And and then uh, actually, my last question, which is definitely not um, uh, not uh, well, which is probably the most important one, is about tech. I mean, and uh, and 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 AI. Uh, in your portfolio, you've been particularly successful um, on that front. Uh, I remember you've been invested in uh, in Tesla for a very long time. You also managed to sell it uh, at or to sell part of it at at the right. Uh, at the right moment, uh, I always uh, I've been listening to your explanations why, why you bought Tesla, and if I understood well, it's because not so much you're so keen on electric cars, but because of the the the, the te- technological value of Tesla with with all its data that it has and, and its potential for uh, self driving. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I understood that was sort of your decision to to buy Tesla, which is uh, I think very refreshing to hear because. In the public discourse, you hear that Tesla is a valuable company because they have uh, electric cars, and, and you seem to to take a different view t- view on that. Uh, so, so, so my question is: um, Are we at the sort of the end of the growth cycle in 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 tech stocks and and uh, and great developments, or are we um, at the, at the very very beginning? And and is now actually um, the time to to uh, look a lot more closer to that and. Um, uh, yeah, and 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 to, to pay a lot more attention to uh, to the great opportunities in in tech. Yeah, for individual companies, I think there are still extraordinary futures, and then for others, you know, it could uh, could go go very wrong very quickly. Uh, as obviously we have not seen at all the final 
outcomes of, of, of AI in our lives. This is really a, only, ju- only just starting. So that's in terms of the value creation that can come from this. There's amazing new products and services that can be created that can make our lives a lot, lot easier. And the companies that are making these, you know, they, they can certainly push this quite far. But then it's a question of how much profit can they be get, getting from it. Certainly some of these big tech companies, when I started investing in, they were very high growth companies, but not that profitable yet. And they were mm. at a very low price because people didn't value growth that yet. Now they're at a much higher price, but they have become extremely profitable companies. So compared to what you're receiving, what they're creating in cash flow every year, compared to what you're paying, is still very little. So in that front, there's still a lot, a lot of room to grow. And that's just based on how much profit they're making. Their profits are growing significantly as well. And they're, they're very, very strong growth with some of these big ones. So they've sort of, they are different, they are different, different idea. You know, you used to be buying, you know, like a one Coca-Cola for $1, but now you're buying like a, you know, a swimming pool full of uh, cola for a whole different price. But it's, you know, it's, it's a, it, the, 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 what you're paying for what you're getting is still a still a very good deal in many of them. Then you have other stuff coming out, you know, new new regulation that depending on exactly how it's shaped, that can determine how the market is shaped, what direction these companies can go in, which which things they should focus on. Are you going to have you know more of implying more money into um, content to give everybody more viewing experiences? And if they do that and it becomes too expensive, that could sort of start to heat into these positive cash flows. So you're suddenly seeing like, wow, we are paying more, but yeah, but they're also giving us so much more and that's actually ending up costing the shareholders. So they're not getting that final uh, thing they thought they were going to get. And, you know, it's, it's some things that are very technologically advanced for a while become seemingly technologically simple in the long run. So you can often have something where it's like there are very few engineers who can figure this out and the university professors aren't teaching it the way that the engineers are really working with it in real life and so forth. But then over time, you know, someone teaches someone else and that person, he becomes a professor and he starts writing some papers about it. Then those students figure it out. Then a textbook is written about it. Everybody can read the textbook. Then a popular science book is written that people can just, and then, you know, suddenly there's some YouTube videos. And over time, it just becomes that there are those things that were, you know, you could reach the point where it's like, oh, Google search engine. I can just program one like that. That's very quick. You know, if you can reach sort of that 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 level, then then of course there can be hyper competition and, and and no profits left. But if you can have this point where you say like, oh, you have companies that have an amazing source of data and they can sort of protect it in certain ways, or they can offer some services because of a you know a critical mass of users or because of of um, yeah. If, other kinds of log login effects, then you can still maintain a very high high profit margin and and avoid it all being competed away for, for some of some of these uh, these companies and that um i think in terms of uh some of some of those things like you know the actual self driving car you know the computer that can see and analyze what it sees and act based off of it the the you know google's uh, like alpha fold in biology taken to the extreme there are some of these sort of things where we can uh, what was that can, sorry google's well, alpha you know, yeah so so they the, um effectively since google bought the the AI company DeepMind, they've been able to, to churn out a lot of, of very cool tools that whenever mm-hmm. you see some breakthrough in AI in one place or the other, very often at the button, you'll see that one of Google's tools was used for this. And that's sort of, okay. you know, um, and that, that just, that sort of underlying basis of, 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 of Google's AI can be used for many, many different things that can create immense value. And Google will likely capture a big part of that value. And we as consumers will capture part of that value. And that's sort of, you know, that, 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 that's the best case for that. You know, shareholders will win, consumers will win, and employees of Google will win. And actually specifically on Google, like, like what we've seen is that um, incumbents tend to be sort of uh, uh, taken over uh, at some point or, 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 or let's say um, 
uh, when you had IBM, they were dominant for a while. Then Microsoft was dominant, uh, and and uh, it, just when specifically, you know, antitrust regulators were saying, "Oh, we have to break them up; they're too big." I mean, that they were already over their top uh, because they were so big. They were not so agile anymore. So, so, so um, I mean, what what makes you so certain that um, it's not going to be some some startup that's now a startup that's going to be the, the new Google in ten years, or, or um, is that because for AI you need a lot of data and and or or? Well, I mean, I've tried to sort of go through all the historical uh, similar cases. You know, the big revolutions mm. we've had historically. So, you know, when oil was invented, you had all the tycoons of America and started transporting things with railroad. You had the railroad barons, and then you had lots of sort of. Uh, also, had when the the telegraph was invented. You know, then you had all the privacy issues. Should people be listening in on a lot of people's uh, telegraphs they're sending? And uh, you know, all of these things have sort of. Uh, been dealt with in, in different ways before and just because you know when you had a, like a the oil industry being established there was the initial companies they grew a lot but the ones that became very very big and stayed there they stayed there for 100 years and saved good investments for 100 years so just because yes. you become huge doesn't mean that suddenly a little guy is going to overtake you like mm. that, that that happens when there is a lot of disruption but when the disruptions happened you can stay in that good position for a long long time but then add to that that um a company like a, like a Meta platforms with Mark Zuckerberg and many others, they are they are well much more aware of this idea that you can get disrupted. That used to not be like even a word. There was just this idea: if you're big, you want, then you are untouchable. And that certainly went away. Effectively, you know, I guess the first big business case where with the Kodak, when uh, sort of they lost uh, with the digital cameras, they had the old cameras, and then suddenly mm. came digital cameras and killed them. And that made everybody sort of holy moly, you know. You can yeah. uh, a new product can come with a new technology and make yours obsolete. And I mean, I remember uh, in the uh, consulting in the telecoms industry, right back when people were saying like they had no fear of uh, of, of Netflix. You know, this wouldn't uh, this 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 wouldn't really do anything, right? And that was, uh, you know, and then then the sort of you know ah, uh, but it's very small. It's just you know ah, uh, yeah, it's growing a lot, but it's still very small. I, people, I don't look at it that way now. Now and also you had this idea back then that oh, but if it becomes big, you can just buy it. So you had the idea oh, you know, we are a very big company. Even if a small company is very very good in there, we can just buy. Them. You can't just buy them now a small company that has something that's gonna you know knock you out can suddenly have a multi-billion dollar valuation they can suddenly ipo suddenly they're growing suddenly they're buying you so you sort of uh, so so there's awareness of that and, and and reaction towards that and that's sort of you know what, what they need to do but uh, you know it, it 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 can can happen fast and especially as uh, as as more and more uh, as it beca- as it potentially becomes easier to launch new technology products fast all right. Well, um, thank you, uh, Jeppe Kirk Bonde, for this uh, this fascinating uh, conversation. I thought uh, that was really uh, really instructive. So 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 thank you very much, and uh, and we'll stay in touch. Definitely. Thank you. The Brussels Report podcast.